It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Ed Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. This week, I welcome back Dr. Jeff Ross, founder of hedge fund Veilshire Capital Management. Veilshire utilizes an innovative, all-weather, full-cycle portfolio management strategy for its clients. This approach aims to achieve the highest possible portfolio returns in whatever macro conditions are present, which is increasingly important in the current scenario. In this interview, we discuss the big picture, hedging strategies in bear markets, further downside potential, and the importance of watching oil. If you're interested in receiving a daily update on thematic investing in the stock market, where we keep you up to date on the next big thing, please look to sign up to the Opto newsletter. The link is in the show notes. Enjoy. Hey, Jeff. Great to have you on the podcast again. How's everything going whilst you're full-time at Velshar? Uh, things are going really well, Ed. Thanks for having me on again. I'm having a great summer, spending some time with my family and uh, just enjoying these uh, crazy market conditions. Yeah, I bet. And um, I don't know what the weather is like there at the moment, but it, we're having a, a crazy heat wave here at the moment. Today is meant to be the um, hottest uh, day ever recorded in the UK. So I don't know, that's like wow. 130 years or something. So it's 40 degrees centigrade, which is very hot for us. Yeah, that's amazing. We're we are um, we're having heat, but it's not nearly as bad as it's been in the past several years. And in fact, this is the first summer that I can remember, probably in the last ten or fifteen years, where we're actually getting a good amount of moisture. We're actually getting rain this year. We've Colorado. We've been in a drought for like a decade. That we've had lots of fires and things. And so this is the first summer where we haven't been dealing with fires. But you're still well, still getting a lot more rain than you would do normally. Is that right? Yeah, at least over the last like 10 to 15 years, we've gotten almost no rain. So this has been, it's been pretty nice. Things are actually green around here for the first time in a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's good to hear. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, moving back to the markets, it's obviously been a very eventful year, some huge swings just recently, obviously some important data releases with the CPI, PPI numbers um, just last week, which and the initial reaction was relatively positive, really, after an initial dip. And we've seen that sort of followed through today. It's a, it's a Monday that we're recording this interview. Um, it, this will go out this Thursday, though, so it's pretty close to it. What's your current outlook at the moment, given the recent data, the market reaction, sentiment, etc.? Yeah, well, I guess in a nutshell, starting back in January of 2022, I started tilting bearish. And then as the months progressed, I I got kind of increasingly bearish. And it was probably March, April or so when things weren't looking too bad. You know, markets had drawn down, but some people were talking about, well, maybe, maybe we've bottomed or, or, you know, maybe things won't be quite so bad. I was telling people that, you know what, we haven't even hit the rough patch yet. We're going to get into a really ugly patch where I think uh, the markets are going to decline precipitously. Um, and the economy is going to look extremely bad. And so I think we're actually at that point now where we're in the rough patch. And I think this rough patch can go on for a while. And I'm actually, 
I, I hate talking like this because I'm a natural optimist, but I'm actually more bearish than I think I've ever been. I, I, I look around at what's going on with the economy, uh, with, you know, everything is decelerating and, and looking worse and worse. And then on top of that, inflation is sticky high and it just kind of keeps, you know, persisting right around in this eight to nine level, obviously. Uh, here in the U.S., the CPI. And then on top of that, the Federal Reserve is stuck, right? Because they have to tighten. And so they're tightening into basically a recession. And I think that's just going to make things um, even worse than they already are. So the markets, to your point, the markets have been rebounding since basically the end of June. I kind of thought they finished the second quarter with, with, a, with a flourish. And now we're having a bit of a relief rally. So I don't really view this as anything more than a bear market relief rally. I think it just kind of got oversold for a bit. But mm-hmm. I do think that we're sort of now uh, nearing the peak. It's what it's Monday, July 18th right now. So I think we're we're kind of nearing the peak. We could have a couple more days, maybe the rest of this week even, where the equities markets still tend to do pretty well. Um, I'm personally taking advantage of that and because I think we have more lows to come. So I'm shorting uh, these bear market rallies and I think that uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, I mean, looking back at a history that's um, in these recessions, there's been some uh, huge bear market rallies haven't there, that, are, that are quite uh, quite swift when they come about and but the, if the underlying factors haven't changed, yeah, a lot of them eventually roll over. And, and like you said, new lows. I think the S- S&P 500 retraced around 25% or something uh, in the recent lows. Back in 2000, 2008, we saw up to 50% drawdowns uh, in those recessions. So are, we, are you sort of expecting something similar in this scenario? I am actually. So I, I am expecting the S&P 500 to drop. It's funny, by the way, because I've, I've spent the morning reading it. People are, I think, very short term in their thinking. And so lots of people are out today saying, OK, the bottoms are in this. That's the worst of it. You know, don't believe the fear mongering, blah, blah, blah. And I just don't believe that for a second. And like I said, I, I'm I'm so bearish on how things are right now from a macroeconomic standpoint that it would be just astonishing to me if the lows are already in. So the S&P 500 right now is sitting just under 3,900. I think we're going back down to 3,000 and maybe sub 3,000 uh, for the S&P 500. So much more pain to come, I think. Um, hopefully I'm wrong. All right. I'd love to be proven wrong. And if I do, my momentum indicators will shift and I'll flip bullish. Um, but I, I don't see any reasonable solutions for this. I don't see any reason why uh, equities should improve or rebound based on uh, the macroeconomic situation, based on what just kind of GDP is doing around the world, um, based on you know persistence of COVID in, in Asia, based on the Russia-Ukraine war, all those kind of things. Uh, and then on top of it, central banks are tightening around the world uh, because they have to. Um, so I just think we're kind of in a catch-22 and it's going to get much worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. And obviously, so you know, markets are forward-looking, they typically say something like, you know, they're looking like nine months in advance or something. So where will we be at that time? And then you always got this problem, right? So even when it's bad, you can see markets flip and go start being positive if they think it's going to be better in the future. Are people sort of trying to envisage that now? Or is this just a sentiment, short-term sentiment shift? And what are they getting wrong if, you know, if they're looking there and it's, it's not the right sort of thing? Yeah, I think, so here's what could happen. Um, what I think is happening is that a lot of people are now thinking that the 9.1 CPI number uh, from June is the peak. And I think we're looking at commodities mm-hmm. dropping substantially. 
Uh, and, you know, housing markets in, here in the U.S. have clearly rolled over. Equities markets obviously have rolled over. So I think people are thinking we're going to start seeing disinflation uh, from this point forward. I think that's actually possible. And so I think they think that that means the Fed can lighten up. But I just think it's different this time. And yeah. it truly is. It's different from anything we've seen over the last 40 years um, because inflation is as high as it is and because the Fed can't pivot. If the Fed pivots and goes dovish again at any point um, in the next several months, inflation is just going to spike again and we're going to be right back where we started. And I think that they have been looking back at the history of the 1970s because we're, we're in a very similar situation than we were uh, in the US back in the early 70s uh, when inflation was creeping much higher. They turned dovish too quickly and all that did is caused inflation to spike again. And then we had a kind of a series of multiple recessions back in the 1970s and people called that kind of Fed Federal Reserve policy error. I think they definitely don't want to repeat that. And I think that the playbook that Powell is thinking of is basically, I need to be, you know, uh, like kind of the, a Volcker style uh, Fed chair, and we need to, to squash inflation as soon as possible. And I think they're going to stick with that narrative for quite some time. And I just think that's extremely bad for uh, risk assets in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I think um, everyone's sort of, sort of expecting this pivot as well, which I, I think, could, you know, that, that, that's the, the major uh, sort of, Thing that could, they could be getting wrong potentially is that you know we're, we're saying that um, I think it's priced in for Q1 already. I was reading that someone was saying that you know that there's the probabilities of uh, there being sort of uh, quantitative easing starting again would happen and end. But obviously, if that's wrong, then the whole picture's different, isn't it? Yeah, and I think what we'll need to see for me to believe that we'll get a pivot sooner than later from the Fed is we need to see basically massive, severe deflation, kind of back to what we saw in uh, Q4 of 2008 and early 2009. And what I've been watching for that is, you know, the markets had already descended about 20 to 30 percent, somewhere in there, um, heading into the fourth quarter of 2008. But then oil had gone parabolic and then oil finally broke and rolled over and then it precipitously dropped fast because we realized that, heck, the whole world is in this just massive recession. And this is actually like terrible, like the whole financial system might collapse. That caused everything to drop um, precipitously. And, um, and then we had actual deflation, not just disinflation, but deflation. Um, that would convince me that the Fed would need to pivot sooner than later. That basically means at that point that the credit markets are locked up, you know, that businesses are collapsing, that the financial system is in jeopardy. Um, the recession has set in very hard and, and uh, the outlook is extremely dire. That's when I think the Fed could pivot sooner than later. Yeah. And then that would be an appropriate time, right? So if we, if we go from high inflation to very low inflation or even deflation, um, that's just kind of a different scenario. So I'm, I'm waiting to see. I think one of those two outcomes at this point is the most likely. Both outcomes are bad, but one is sort of a continued slow grind lower like what we've seen. And the other is kind of a tear the bandaid off yeah. Um, yeah, a calamity kind of moment that causes the Fed to pivot. But is there, a, so there's also potential that we still have sticky inflation, but we also go into a sharp recession. How do you think they act in that scenario? That's tough because I think a recession by sort of definition draws down inflation. Yeah. So I don't think we'll continue to have high inflation at least over, like if we're talking, and just so you know, I think in terms of kind of quarters, like months to quarters. So if we have um, uh, basically moments where um, the economy is just continuing to drop and equities continue to drop and we do go into a, like a, a significant recession, we see unemployment numbers start to increase. 
um, then I think we're actually, but just by definition, going to start seeing disinflation of some sort. So I don't think it can remain sticky high once we're officially in a recession uh, in the U.S. and around the world. And so, what are the leading sort of indicators that you're watching to, to you know to know if we're going to go into uh, you know sort of deep recession? Yeah, actually, the main thing I'm still watching is oil. Uh, oil, you know, it's come down about 20% from its highs. I'm sort of waiting for it to pull another late 2008 and just drop off a cliff and drop down to kind of the 80, like 70, 80 dollar a barrel level. Um, but it's it's kind of hanging in there. It's right around a hundred dollars right now. It's a 101 a barrel. That's um, cool, yeah. So so as long as that remains high, that holds inflation up. Uh, and again, that gives it its stickiness, that sticky high levels. So I want to see oil yeah. drop. I say I want to. I, I think that it's very possible that oil drops precipitously. Basically, why? Because you know businesses all around the world, the the economy still moves on oil, like it or not. And so uh, once businesses start to shut down, once the transportation industry starts to kind of wind down uh, operations because they see the outlook uh, looking so ugly and the prices of oil too high, high prices are, are the cure for high prices for oil. So, so eventually they just can't afford it anymore. Their margins disappear. They decide to shut down operations until uh, we have a better outlook. That's when the price drops um, precipitously. So I'm still waiting for that to happen uh, as long as oil kind of hangs around the $100 level. Um, we, we may not, um, uh, we may not get this, this big bottom. We may not see significant disinflation. That's actually a bad sign to me. And that's just kind of my personality. I'm a, I'm a tear the bandaid off kind of guy. Like I want to see this all happen quickly and kind of get the pain over with so that we can then, you know, bottom, uh, the fed can pivot. Um, we can, all the valuations will be reset from equities, uh, through real estate and commodities, and then we can start again and start the new bull market uh, over again. But um, as long as it remains sticky high, I'm, I'm kind of nervous that this is actually going to happen. And then the Fed is just going to have to keep staying hawkish. Uh, and the markets may just continue to grind lower and lower and lower uh, over the coming months and quarters. And this could, be, this could last much longer than most people are uh, anticipating. Yeah, I think there's um, this sort of recency bias that people are looking back at the last two financial crisis and uh, even though those did go deeper than what we're seeing now uh, well at least in um you know the indices like s&p 500 we've seen some pretty sharp pullbacks in in the nasdaq and various growth stocks but um yeah so what would change your outlook apart from oil then like like when we're looking at the dollar as well because the dollar's obviously had a big impact on on risk assets generally are, are you watching that closely as well I am, yeah. So watching the Dixie, the Dixie right now is sitting above 107. It's obviously had just a monstrous year. And, and as everybody knows, the dollar is like a wrecking ball, right? So it just crushes all risk assets. And it's that's that's been the case. And it's sort of a, it's not necessarily um, just the dollar causing it. It's the cause and it's the effect. Uh, and I mean that by saying when people sell their risk assets out of fear, what they're doing is buying the dollar. So that adds to, you know, uh, decreased yeah. liquidity of the dollar adds to dollar strength. Um, so I think that will continue. Um, we'll, we'll know we're in kind of the, the um, later stages of a recession as we see the dollar continue to strengthen against everything else. And you know, when we get those sort of panic moments where everybody is selling out of basically anything, like there's a lot of people today, this week, last week, they've been buying. They've been buying stocks. They think the bottom might be in. They've been buying Bitcoin. Um, there, you know, I see people talking about crypto. The worst is over. And I just, again, I don't agree with any of that. I think they're going to pay. 
And so all these people who are getting in are getting sucked into uh, what I think is a trap are, are going to be selling later and buying dollars back again. And so that will lead to more dollar strength. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But again, it's a, it's a, it's not looking good kind of in the in the next couple of months and quarters. Mm-hmm. When do you think we'll eventually come out of this then? If we're saying at least a couple of quarters of, of drawdowns or... Yeah, it depends. So, like what I was saying before, I, I see these two outcomes. I think I think that it, it and again, it, it basically depends on what oil does and and related what inflation does. If inflation stays sticky high, I think this is going to last much longer than most people are willing to admit because I think the Fed is just going to have to continue, and and central banks around the world are going to have to continue to um, remain hawkish and withdraw liquidity from the system, and so we're just going to see this painful grind lower. Uh, in equities, in in real estate, and similar entities, and that can go on for quarters and quarters. And you know, we may be a year from now still talking about this if inflation doesn't break. But again, that's that's option one. Option two, they're both bad options. Option two is that we see this precipitous decline. We see kind of a late 2008, early 2009 type event um, where everything just drops dramatically. And there's just massive fear in the system. I hate to say this, but like I kind of want that to happen because that's just how my personality is. I like to get things over with yeah. uh, and and just deal with all the pain. I actually think the Federal Reserve should quit being such patsies because we everybody knows they want to raise rates uh, much higher than where they are now. And I would be like, pull a Volcker and get it over with then. Like raise yeah. it 200 bips, raise it 300 bips at the next meeting and quit talking about, you know, two and a half, three and a half percent. Like we need to get it much higher if we're actually going to break the back of inflation. And what do you expect of this? Because obviously it's, it's around the corner of the next meeting. People have sort of been talking about 100 uh, basis points, but I'm not sure. It flips flop between there and 75 basis points at the moment, the likely uh, scenarios. What's your opinion? Yeah, I don't have a strong opinion. I, th- I would um, be... Um, I think either will happen. I think it'll be either 75 or 100 basis points, and neither would surprise me at this point. I don't really think either would surprise the markets either. So I, I would be shocked if it was lower. I wouldn't. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if they went a little higher. I kind of hope they do, but I, I don't think they will. I think it'll be either 75 or 100. And what's holding them back from doing that? Why don't they just go go for it? They're worried about the recession. They're trying to. Is it politics getting involved here? They they have pressures that they have to sort of adhere to. I think they think they're and they're trying to engineer a soft a softish landing as they've as they've used that term. I think they're trying to uh, by doing it at little kind of piecemeal at a time. Um, but w- what they want to do is be much more aggressive. Um, I think they think they'll just totally decimate the system if they go too aggressively. But honestly, I think the system is ready for it because basically everybody knows what they want to do. They've sort of shown their hand in advance. Um, but, but they won't, uh, I, I think that's just too out of, um, the ordinary for them. So I think they go 75 or hundred and then they watch and wait and, and hope that the markets don't respond too poorly. But what they really want is they want to see inflation start to turn. So hopefully by July, August, um, you know, when we start to see those CPI prints, we'll see some evidence that disinflation is taking hold. I'm still not optimistic that they're going to succeed yet. And you don't think when the market starts seeing these sort of the turn, so you're getting around the bend that they'll start to try and preemptively sort of invest capital at that point. Well, I I, I think that um, it depends how hard the turn is and how quickly it happens and what and exactly what the turn is. So valuations were massively stretched back in the fourth quarter of 2021, like all time highs for kind of price to sell sales metrics, price to earnings were near all time highs. These kind of ratios were just just kind of off the charts high. 
a lot of that slack still has to be worked out. So even though markets have come down as dramatically as they have, even though some tech stocks are down 70%, some of them are still overvalued um, and they have, they have more to go, more declines to go. Mm-hmm. So I just think th- there's also like way too much leverage built up in the system that's getting withdrawn currently. So I'm just not optimistic this time around. And again, it's because the Fed can't just pivot like they have in the past. So, so you know, if we look back 10, 20, 30 years, we'll like, well, look at that. You know, the markets went down X percent and then the Fed pivoted. They couldn't take it anymore. They wanted to s- support the market. So, so they pivoted, went dovish. I just don't think they have the option this time because of the whole inflation problem. And it's a severe problem and, I, and they know it. They're, they're not letting on that they're concerned about it. Um, but I think they're very stuck uh, this time around. And so they need to see evidence of continued um, convincing disinflation where it comes substantially down because they know that if they pivot, it's, it's just going to cause inflation to spike again and we're going to yeah. be right back in the same uh, trouble that we were in before. Yep. And so there's GDP data out end of this month. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a lagging indicator, but People, people do watch it. Do you, do you expect to, to see sort of a, a sharper contraction or, or is the worst going to come sort of in the quarters later on? Yeah, another good question. So I def, well, first of all, I was surprised to the downside, which is surprising because I've been bearish since January. Yeah. I was surprised that Q1 GDP was actually negative in the US and, and it was. And so I think definitely Q2 GDP will also be negative. And then I think it actually gets worse in the third quarter um, and possibly in the fourth quarter as well. The comparisons in the third quarter are a little easier, kind of on a year-over-year basis. And then in the fourth quarter, it gets tough again. So so we could see some pretty ugly numbers. So to your point, by the way, you've asked a couple of times and I haven't I haven't uh, really gone down that that hole yet, but could we see a rebound um, in equities? Um, the third quarter would be the time where uh, we could. And that's because comparisons are relatively easy. So the numbers won't look quite as bad on a year-over-year uh, basis. Um, we could see a bit of a rally. Again, I would just still consider it a, a bear market rally, you know, so so a kind of bullish momentum within this otherwise larger uh, bearish downturn. You know, I would just be using that as an opportunity to place positions for for um, for more shorts, for more downside to come. Uh, and I definitely don't think the worst is over. So we may have this little bit of a rebound uh, and then it and then suddenly the floor drops out and, and we go down another quick 20, 30, 40 percent or so from there. Wow. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Looking forward, do you think um, we're just going to enter the next bull market whenever it occurs, however long this sort of period uh, lasts for, once they've sort of got over that and, and we're starting into a growth period again, do you see it as similar to the you know the last... 20 years pre-COVID or is it something new now? I think it will be similar. Um, what I'm trying to figure out is, is it going to be more like post.com, the post, you know, the, the 1999, 2000 crash and the recession that kind of went into 2002, where then for the next decade, basically growth stocks went nowhere and that was the decade of value. Oh, wow. um, or do we go more like a post-great financial crisis where we had the decade of growth stocks? And I don't know. Um, I, I think I would lean towards it will be better for growth and innovation, like the, you know the Kathy Wood style stocks. Yeah. 
um, the Teslas, the you know the the innovation sort of things. If if the Fed basically comes out and says we are just we're going to do quantitative easing and we are going to like blow your brains out for how huge this is going to be, we're going to dwarf all of the prior quantitative easing we've done. And I think that's very possible and probably actually probable um, that that's what they're going to do. If we see that just massive quantitative easing. Um, then I think that it'll be kind of the decade of growth yeah. or maybe not a decade, but several years of growth. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they kind of take a more conservative stance because, Hey, we don't want to rock the boat like we did before. We don't want to leak, you know, trigger high inflation again. Let's just kind of take it conservatively. Then I would say gro- uh, value stocks will be the place to be, but that's sort of a wait and see for me. Interesting. So when bear markets occur, what, what sort of hedging strategies can, can one employ? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a very uh, pertinent question right now, for sure. So I think the number one way for most people, especially if you're just kind of a, a, a lay person, you know, doing your own investing and you're not super comfortable doing anything too fancy, just increase your cash position. Yeah, it, it, it makes a massive difference. And so most people sort of feel the need, especially if they have retirement plans or things like that, that they need to be 100% invested the, uh, all of the time. And you don't. Uh, one very wise move is just increase your cash position, whether that's up to 10% or 20% or 50%. Um, if you're very concerned um, or 100%, just sit completely in cash and just kind of wait till the smoke settles and the dust clears um, and then you can jump back in. So that's my number one recommendation, increase cash position, especially US dollars, by the way, because that's sort of the the go-to uh, risk off safe haven asset at the yeah. moment. Um Other things, if you're a little more advanced and you have these kind of uh, trading privileges in your accounts, I love to short um, equities. I love to look at um, things that have very bearish momentum and short them. So like right now in my, in my Valeshire accounts, we, we're shorting uh, the NASDAQ pretty heavily. In fact, I just increased our shorts this morning because they're nearing kind of the, uh, the top end of their volatility ranges. They're still in bearish formation like the NASDAQ is, um, but it's had a nice rally here. So I use these rips or these rallies to increase my short positions. And until the momentum changes, I'm going to stay short. I'm going to stay leaning bearish and try to actually not just not just get through it, but to actually profit from uh, from these bear markets. Um, and that you can you can do these kind of same strategies using options as well. You can buy puts uh, if you like to to use options. That's kind of another nice way to do things. And then the final way, uh, and I don't really recommend this, but you can um, do this. A lot of times when people really get scared, volatility spikes. So you can actually go long volatility. Um, some funds that are popular, VXX, and I actually prefer one called UVXY. Um, basically, if you think that uh, we, we've reached, uh, it's been too calm and too complacent, and you think we're going to see another volatility spike, you can take a long position in volatility and profit. I, if people do that, by the way, first of all, I don't recommend this. These are not individual uh, investment recommendations or trading recommendations. But if you do do that, I, I do recommend that you take profits quickly. Like you don't just hold a volatility fund or you'll actually lose money over time. But if you want if you want to use that as a hedging strategy, when it spikes, if it does spike, if you get the timing right, take profits quickly uh, and close your position and then move on. And how do you gauge uh, momentum? So there's lots of different ways to do it. I think just some of the best ways are to use it. And it depends what you are. If you are a shorter term trader or a longer term investor, 
you use the, the easiest way to do that is to use moving averages. And so again, if, if you're a trader, you want to use kind of shorter term moving averages. If you're a, a longer term investor, then obviously you want to use kind of a longer term. So the traditional metrics that kind of investors like to use, I would say the shortest one would be like a 50 day moving average to a hundred day moving average. And then the kind of the bigger one is the 200 day moving average. Lots of institutional investors use that. It, it's simple. It's, it's, it's as simple as it sounds, but basically if an, if an asset is trending below the 200 day moving average, then it's in bearish formation. So you wouldn't want to be long something like that. There are value investors that would use use that as a positive sign to start buying uh, a long-term position uh, when it's below those levels. And that's historically a good thing to do if you have a very long time horizon. But if you don't want to endure these losses, a great strategy is just wait till that bearish momentum flips back above a momentum line. Uh, and then enter a bullish position at that point. Um, I use a lot of those kind of uh, strategies for my fund as well. And that that's just kind of a safe way to not take massive losses, especially if you have positions in things like growth, innovation, uh, Bitcoin, um, those kind of things. They have massive volatility. So you really, if you don't want to endure those 50, 60, 70, 80% declines, um, then use momentum as part of your strategy. Yeah, very interesting. And um, yeah, touched on Bitcoin there. It's obviously been very highly correlated to, I think in particular, the NASDAQ um, the last maybe year or so potentially, but it's got very high, highly correlated over time uh, towards now. And when and why do you think this might change? Why it might change? So the, re- so the reason why I think it's correlated is because people still, the majority of market participants still do not understand what Bitcoin is. What it is most simply is it's, it's simply better money. It's, it's money that's the antithesis of government fiat currency. And I won't go into the whys of that right now, but just based, based on its monetary properties, it's, it's just a different kind of money that's meant to appreciate in value over time versus uh, depreciate in value uh, over time. But the majority of market participants still don't understand that. They, they sort of lump it together with, quote unquote, crypto, uh, and they think of it like a small tech stock. So based on kind of uh, institutional level hedge fund algorithms, it gets treated like a highly volatile tech stock. And so yeah. it, it basically has a nearly one to one correlation with, with, you know, especially small cap tech stocks, basically. When and why? So the why is it's just a matter of education. It's a matter of people understanding that it actually is um, money, that it's actually a better Mm -hmm. safe haven asset, believe it or not, than the US dollar. Um, It's going to take many years for the world to come around to that. I think we're still at least maybe five years out from that happening. Um, But in the meantime, yeah, it trades like a risk asset. And so you need to be careful with it. So if, if you're concerned about that and volatility really bothers you, then I and but you want to own Bitcoin, I just recommend keeping your position size very small. You know, start with a 1% position or something so that if it loses, you know, 50%, you're not going to lose sleep at night and be all stressed out. The more you understand it, the more you can take advantage of the volatility. The Instead of trying to time tops and bottoms, you can start to learn to recognize value. You can learn when it's kind of uh, getting uh, overbought and when it's oversold, when it's trading at kind of a deep value price. I actually think that's where we are now, mm-hmm. uh, based on the metrics I use. I think it's about 50% um, undervalued right now. And so uh, based on kind of adoption curves, demand-based models and things like that, that I like to use. Uh, so I think these prices, if you're a long-term uh, holder of it and a saver of Bitcoin, that these are great prices to be buying at for for the long term. And what about um, gold has obviously historically been perceived as an inflation hedge um, even if uh, Bitcoin hasn't really got to that st- stage yet, there might be in the future when people start perceiving it differently. Uh, but even gold's been struggling. So, uh, what, what do you think's been going going on there? 
So a couple of things. First of all, I think that Bitcoin, I think the the reason why this is also confusing is I think the, the Federal Reserve and governments around the world since the 70s have been um, confusing the definition of what inflation is. I tend to be kind of more of a purist. I, I'm, I'm in the, uh, I like the way Milton Friedman talked about things. You know, it, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And I think that the Fed kind of confused that because they don't want people to think of inflation as a bad thing because that's literally what they do is they increase the, the monetary supply. So I think that the, the Bitcoin is absolutely a fantastic currency debasement hedge. Basically, as fiat debases itself over time uh, and as the monetary supply increases faster than the world's basically GDP increases, um, Bitcoin is basically a perfect hedge to that. Now, inflation, so what we think of as like prices rising on goods, consumer goods, that is much harder to predict. And that, that's more related to increases in the broad monetary supply, um, not really the base money. It's getting a little bit esoteric here. But that is, that is a different kind of entity. I think it's definitely caused by maneuvers of the central banks and of governments. Um, and, and again, I don't want to go down these rabbit holes too much. But I think that that's kind of harder to predict. And those sort of things ebb and flow based on what the economy is doing um, and what the Federal Reserve is doing. So getting back to gold, what's going on with gold? Gold throughout its history has been a fantastic stable store of value for thousands of years. And so kudos to that. But I think that as we enter into this digital age, I think we are finally able to create a more perfect money, a more perfect gold, if you will. Um, and the younger generations have understood that. They understood that because of our digital age that we're entering into, we were actually able to create a more perfect money that wasn't possible in the analog age. And so they're just simply put, there are just less gold bugs out there. There are less people who believe that gold is this long-term stable store of value. They're like, well, if I like gold, why wouldn't I like Bitcoin, which is like 10x or 100x better uh, in multiple ways than gold is. Um, and so I think gold is actually just really slowly being demonetized, meaning that it's carried this monetary premium. So it's, it's a commodity, right? It's a hard commodity. It has value as a commodity, but it also has a monetary premium that's tacked on top of that. I think that we're slowly seeing that monetary premium get eroded away as basically the older generations who are gold bugs are sort of dying out or getting less prominent and the younger generations are coming up and they don't see gold as a stable store of value. They think of it more as a relic and as a commodity. And so I'm not convinced that it will remain as a real stable store of value uh, over the coming uh, 100 years. I think that it's going to become more like just a commodity. And I think we've actually seen that already happen with silver. Silver used to be a money. It's become demonetized. Now people mostly just think of silver as a commodity with its commodity use cases. Yeah, that's really interesting. I put, I, you know, in the back of my head, I was thinking, are these trends starting to go on? But and then you think that you know the institutions, the big money, most of them are more sort of old world. Maybe that couldn't be happening so quickly. Um, but I suppose you know it's got to start some of this trend. Um, and but you can imagine then as you, that that sort of monetary value that's placed on top of gold on top of its like use cases as soon as that really starts to go it could potentially drop quickly right because everyone's like it disappears it's a belief in it that yeah if it changes it's not there anymore Exactly. Although I don't think it will happen very quickly honestly because I think that most of the baby boomer generation and it's a huge generation um, that they still are gold bugs for the most part. And so I think, and I hate to be sound morbid, but basically until that entire generation kind of dies off, 
um, then I think it will be by the end of that, it will start to be treated just as the, uh, as a commodity value and not with the additional monetary premium. So I think this process is actually going to take several decades to work out. Um, and, and what's that what, for price wise? I think, I think the value of gold, like the, the market cap, if you will, of gold is kind of in the 10 to $12 trillion range. It's been stuck there for quite a while. I think it's probably just going to go sideways for a very long time because it, it should be going up, but people don't really believe in it, you know, as a, as a monetary substitute anymore. And so uh, as the baby boomers die off, there's not going to be a lot of buyers. So there's not going to be a lot to drive up the price. Um, so I just see it sort of flatlining for the next decade or so, uh, which is great if everything else is collapsing. Uh, maybe flatlining is, is, a, is a good thing. It has been so far this yeah. year. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't look to it as a great store of value for the next hundred years. I've got one more last question, Jeff. I've already, you've already answered so many of great ones. Um, but there's this thing about the emerging markets and the dollar, uh, a potential debt crisis. What are your thoughts on this? Is it starting to happen already? What implications are there globally? This is what makes me so bearish, Ed, is that um, I think you know the, the last few crises were basically related to the banking sector and certain businesses and things like that. This time, I'm very concerned we see a sovereign level crisis where we see multiple nations just getting absolutely wrecked. So we're heading into a worldwide recession right now. The dollar obviously is strengthening because that's what it does when we get into these kind of conditions. These poor nations that are already barely able to pay back their US-based debt, now their currency is devaluing rapidly against the dollar. So they're going to start defaulting. I think we're going to see sovereign debt default occur on a widespread and probably a never-before-seen level. Uh, and it's going to be really ugly. Like It's going to feel like how, how it was probably post-World War II, where all of these nations were just decimated, and there's just no possible way they can pay back debts at that point. And I think we're sort of in a similar state where the debt level I think it's, it's part of the beginning of the end of a lot of these things, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, who has these massive amounts of loans out to all of these countries, these countries are going to default. And then it's going to be like, well, who's going to pay that bill if, if these countries start to default? Are, are U.S. taxpayers going to cover that? You know, Are the stronger Western nations going to cover that bill? What if we're in a deep recession? How are we supposed to possibly be able to do that? So I think we're at a we're at the point where we're going to see real uh, you know long lasting institutional level things start to break, and then I think you know the end point I see again like a year from now who knows how long it's going to take till we reach a bottom, but th the next level of quantitative easing people are going to start to say like how can you possibly expand the monetary supply and debase your currency so much how how are we going to continue to have confidence in this currency that the currency is legitimate if we're paying off debt by basing by debasing our currencies so severely what is the value of currency and this for for me all all drives it back home to bitcoin like this is where the value proposition of bitcoin exists a, a currency that you can't debase that you can't print more of when when you're having these economic woes um, I think people are going to start moving, transferring their purchasing power from their current government fiat currencies and into Bitcoin. And we're going to see a lot more of that before this decade is over. Well, that's very interesting. Again, Jeff, it's been great to have uh, the opportunity to, to interview and um, really, really relevant stuff about what's happening at the moment. I hope um, people listen in and, and get a lot of value out of it. And I know I have. Um, but yeah, thanks again. And, and where can people go to keep up to date with, with what your, your, your uh, commentary in the markets? 
Yeah, thanks, Ed. Thanks again for having me. It was a lot of fun speaking with you. Um, the best way to find me, if you want to learn more about my investment style, how I, how I invest pretty differently for my Valeshire clients, you can check out the website, valeshire.com. You can even just shoot me an email. If you if you send it to info at valeshire.com, I'll respond to it personally, Have a, a run a hedge fund, and then also run separately managed accounts. And then if you just want to um, keep in touch with my day-to-day stuff, I'm on Twitter all the time. My my handle is at Cap, and I'd be happy to connect with you there. Yeah, I highly recommend following uh, Jeff on, on Twitter. Thanks very much, Jeff. I'll, I'll hopefully catch up again soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Ed. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.